Welcome to the Shape Notes Podcast, where we uncover inspiring stories and engage in thought-provoking conversations with exceptional individuals who are shaping the world of technology and innovation in Africa. I'm your host, Jabulo Sandawana, and today we have a truly remarkable guest joining us. She is a visionary leader, CEO, and co-founder of Zendi, a data science competition platform dedicated to solving Africa's problems by bringing together a community of data scientists who collaborate and compete to come up with the best possible solutions. In today's episode, we had the privilege of speaking with Selena about her role in founding Zendi and some of the challenges and hurdles she faced along the way. We also discussed the importance of data science in addressing Africa's unique problems and how Zendi is playing a pivotal role in harnessing the power of data to drive innovation and positive change. Now, here's my conversation with Selena Lee. Hi, Selena. Welcome to the Shape Notes podcast. Hey, thank you so much. You grew up in San Francisco and uh, it is known as this, you know, commercial, financial and cultural hub um, for North California. I'm interested in knowing um, what it was like growing in, growing up there and what are some of the memories that you have uh, growing up that have helped shape who you are today? Yeah, I was born and raised in San Francisco. Um, I, yeah, I think when I was growing up, San Francisco was, was quite different than it is now. I mean, I think it was, you know, it was the eighties. It was just the beginning of the whole tech scene. Um, you know, Apple was coming up, but it was, you know, just I had Microsoft, obviously, but it was still the early days of the whole tech revolution. I mean, I think that in some ways growing up there, that did influence my perspective and, um, you know, just my orientation towards towards technology, though I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm like, you know, a hardcore technologist, but I think that, you know, at least raised my awareness and just curiosity about it for sure. Um, and but it was very different because, you know, now when I go back to San Francisco, it's such a different world. It's totally, um, you know, very much dominated by the startup and tech scene. When we were growing up, it was still had a lot of, um, you know, just the other cultural arts and creative aspects um, that also San Francisco is known for. Awesome. That, that actually kind of reminds me of, um, I think it was uh, Senator. Uh, uh, back in 1880 was actually giving a, a prediction of what uh, San Francisco would be and his prediction was that it would actually be, California would be um, a an agricultural hub and it seems like the, the exact opposite uh, has happened um, and I think that's a, that's a very interesting thing. So, like, so uh, growing up um, what, 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 what sort of fields were you interested in? Like you said, this was maybe the the tech scene was still um was still kind of nascent, but yeah. What 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 sort of uh what did you imagine yourself being uh at that at that point, at that early age? I always did love math. I mean, so you know, it's not it's not a far stretch to, you know, for me now or or rather, you know, it it's been always kind of an aspiration for me to, you know, to work with data and work with math in some way. Um, I think I, I took a very indirect route to be where I am now, <laughs> but 
you know, there was a long time that I wasn't working in this area. So it, it is kind of nice that I've somehow managed to find my way back. But growing up, when I think about myself as a kid and through high school, my favorite subject was always math. <laughs> um, I didn't know what I would ever do with it. I think in those days, you know, if you liked math, people would say, okay, you can be an engineer. Um, or, you know, when I went to college, I studied applied math and my peers went on to be actuaries, for example. Um, you know, because it was the days before there was even this concept of huge data, you know, big data and data science. Um, so it wasn't always clear what you would end up doing if you liked math, but that was that was always my favorite. Yeah. But did you foresee yourself maybe going into academia or something like that? Like, was, was the conventional path uh, for someone who's interested in math academia or or was it uh, was it something else yeah I mean it would be yeah that's that's true it was like I said when I graduated I think it was either academia which was never going to be my that was never going to be my world so it was either academia or become an actuary um, and then when I was younger, I think it was just this automatic thing, like, oh, you can be like a civil engineer or a, <laughs> or maybe an electrical engineer, yeah. uh, something like that. So at what point did you actually gain, uh, develop interest in technology? And maybe you can also speak to how, you know, uh, this world of math that you're in and uh, the current world that you're in sort of uh, intersect. It's... Being interested in technology, I mean, I, like I said, I don't really consider myself a tech, you know, a hardcore technologist or anything like that. But I think what interests me about technology is, um, you know, so after, so after I, after I went to college and I studied math and I minored in computer science, I thought it was going to go into IT, and I did go into IT for for a little bit, but that environment you know the corporate environment you know then i was in new york it was really corporate america and it just didn't resonate with me i just couldn't see myself staying there um you know i really it it hit home for me very much like that i needed to find something that would also be fulfilling on a personal level so after a short stint in corporate america i went on to join the peace corps which is like a volunteer program with the American government. Um, and I ended up in Panama, which is in Central America. Um, I ended up teaching computer, like I, my community, pro you live in a community, like a rural village basically for two years. Um, and, you know, you live in the community, you, you work on community projects and the community project that I worked on was to build the first computer center um, in that whole region. It was in the very early days. There was definitely not internet. There weren't really even mobile phones. Um, and yeah, so I built a, with the community, we built a computer center, a small community center, computer center, and I, I gave classes. Um, I taught the students and then I taught the young adults and kind of helped translate on how you know, that technology could help them in their own, you know, there were artisan cooperatives, there were, I mean, mostly people were, you know, the main jobs that people had with selling their handmade crafts. So even 
the final field trip was we took them to um, the closest university campus, which was a 10 kilometer mile hike out to the road, wait for a bus, and then take another two hour bus ride down this, you know, the dirt road to this um, small university campus where they had a computer lab. And so that was the field trip. And we went to the computer lab that had an internet connection. And we looked at on the internet and we actually looked at ways that people were selling actually even their own, um, the artisan work that they had done, like and how it was ending up on the internet and being sold like in places like in the United States and New Mexico. Um, so anyway, I guess the, the, the point of this is to say that it's, you know, and from there I went into a career in international development where I ended up working in, you know, in development projects in Latin America and in Asia and in Africa. And I think the, um, you know, so the draw to me about technology and the connection that I've had with it, the slight personal connection I've had with it since I was young and growing up in California is mostly around, you know, there actually for me, it's actually about the digital divide. I mean, for whatever reason, that's been kind of the thing that has struck me, like that all of these amazing technologies and all these amazing things are coming out of a place like Silicon Valley. I mean, it it is incredible. Um, but for me, because of the experience I've had, like, you know, in that village in Panama and, and looking at how these people are selling their goods for basically, you know, a dollar or two dollars, and they're ending up on the internet and being sold for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Um, you know, the, the idea for me always has been like, there's that digital divide is the technology that is being introduced into this world acting as a force to close the digital divide or widen the digital divide to d close or divide, um, sorry, to close or widen, not just the digital divide, but then the economic divide, the opportunity divide, you know? Yeah. So that, so that to me is the most important <laughs> or the thing that I've been most interested in about technology. Yes. So, so how long were you in Panama for? And can you maybe um, zoom into a, like a, a particular case or an individual whose whose life you saw being changed with this uh, particular program that you guys were uh, were implementing. Mm -hmm. I was in Panama for two years, and uh, so we gave I we did classes. Just even how do you turn on a computer? <laughs> how do you start a Word document? Like you know what is Word? What is Excel? Um, and you know, and then, and then beyond that, then it was starting to be like, how do we, you know, can we, you know, make a catalog or a brochure on, you know, on the goods that people are making, um, in the community. Uh, so when I, after I left, like I actually went back to Panama a couple years later, just on a work trip. And I went to visit, um, the village where I was. And I think the, you know, one of the exciting things that came out of that was I saw one of my students um, and he was, he, he was always just, I mean, he was very smart. He was to me so gifted, but you know, he didn't, he, I mean, just like most people in the village, he was mostly a subsistence farmer, fisher, you know, um, he didn't have a, a job actually. And 
when I went back to the village, he was so excited because he said that he had gotten a job at the local health center um, where he was going every day to the health center to work in the office because he was the only person who knew how to use Excel who applied for the job. Yeah. Selena, you've worked uh, extensively in the field of financial inclusion and uh, you have, in this uh, in this area, held a position as, as the head of financial inclusion for Axio Analytics and as director of the Center for Financial Regulation and Inclusion. Now, how, how do you see data science um, and AI playing a role in terms of uh, improving financial inclusion in Africa? And what are some of the key challenges that you think uh, need to be addressed in this particular space? Mm. Right. So with financial inclusion, um, you know, it's a topic that I have been working on or I was working on for quite a while. And actually, when I first came to South Africa, it was um, because of and for a job uh, leading a project to advance the use of data and analytics and data science in financial inclusion. Um, so when we talk about financial inclusion, we're talking about ensuring that all people um, have access to the types of support services that they need to manage their economic lives more efficiently, uh, you know, and whether it's being able to access loans in order to make long-term investments, um, you know, in their, in their own or their family's well-being, like, you know, loans for education, loans to buy a home. Um, it's about helping people be able to accumulate wealth over time through having a safe and efficient place and way for them to to save or you know making sure that day-to-day -day people can make the transactions of you know accessing their own resources um, to make payments in an efficient way so you know these are all the different tools that you know you or I maybe take uh, you know for granted but for people who are living in areas that are low access where it's not so easy for them to just, you know, hop over to a bank branch and walk into the bank branch. Or, you know, if you think about, you know, the, the bank accounts with all the, all the services and features that, that one might have, those can be really expensive, prohibitively expensive for, you know, for the average person in Africa. So I'm really interested in the ways that data and technology can play a role in making those services more affordable, more accessible, um, where it allows, you know, the whether they're microfinance institutions or banks or, you know, or even the telcos where they're able to provide these services, you know, in a way that is business is viable for their business um, and serve segments of the population that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise without the use of data and data science and technology. Um, so I'm really excited about that area. Um, yeah. And just one other thing is like, I, you know, especially in the area of data, like I think that data plays a role in all aspects of this topic of financial inclusion, because it's everything from like how the services are provided, like I just said, but it's also about like you know, governments being able to make the right policies that are informed by data. So, I, you know, that's another area where data plays a role in financial inclusion is like what types of, you know, how how and what data, um, you know, can can even policymakers collect um, to make the right decisions 
based on what people are actually experiencing on the ground. Yeah, awesome. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think, um, especially on the point about you know data being uh, an important part of decision making, because it it really plays a, a huge role when you're actually going to uh, make particular policies or um, make certain decisions. Go- government, in this case, like you said, needs to have uh, the right data or the right information in order to make uh, those informed decisions. But maybe for yeah. for um, for perspective, like well, what does the financial um, scene look like in, say, California as opposed to, to Africa? Because I think it would be a better place to actually, you know, draw a comparison so that we actually get a clear picture of why um, financial inclusion is important. Well, I think the interesting thing is... You know, in the U.S., almost everyone is banked, although that would be hard to, I mean, that's even, there's even still a lot of people within the United States who don't have access to bank accounts, say, because of, you know, their, uh, their immigration status, uh, you know, even like credit scoring, which is a very powerful tool, can also work against people in America. So I think, you know, I've, you know, I think while there are a lot of things that we can take for granted in the United States as having access to certain banking services, I think ironically, uh, we can also take a lot of inspiration from the innovation that comes out of Africa, you know, with mobile banking and um, even in South Africa, where I am now, <laughs> there's a lot of ways that the banking, you know, systems here in South Africa are more advanced than in the United States. And I think a lot of that just comes from the innovative nature of what, you know, the way business is done in Africa, because there are certain challenges that exist. And, you know, there's unique, there's challenges that are unique to Africa about access, about, um, you know, what people have or don't have. Uh, It's, it, it, it actually gives rise to these very innovative and different solutions and solutions that are built on different rails that don't exist in America. Um, like one thing that's interesting, say, in Kenya is that from very early on, I mean, I think it was maybe like, you know, 10 or more years ago, I was looking at a statistic where already, you know, say 10, 15 years ago, like there were already more SIM cards in Kenya than there were people. So Kenya completely had leapfrogged into, you know, just mobile first and which gave rise to M-Pesa and all the mobile money stuff that was happening that came out of Kenya, um, you know, and it's everywhere in, in Africa, almost South Africa's maybe not so much, but, but I think that there's a lot of innovation that, you know, that that's so unique to, to Africa that other regions can actually take inspiration from. Yeah, definitely. I think um, so. The leapfrog uh, phenomenon is one that um, uh, characterizes, you know, African African innovation. And and yeah. maybe can you also, you know, maybe highlight uh, specific instances or specific um, cases that you worked on uh, in your involvement with the Center for Financial Regulation and Inclusion, and also how this work has informed your approach to data science and uh, and financial inclusion. Yeah. Um, well, maybe to give a, 
like another example of some of the work that I did even before that was with the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, where um, this was a a program funded by uh, the Gates Foundation, um, and it was to create like the first network of governments around the world. Well, actually, it's let's say like in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, you know, developing and emerging market um, countries to create a network of of these countries, of the policymakers and the regulators, financial sector regulators um, in all of these countries so that they could learn from each other in terms of what types of policies and regulatory frameworks were most conducive and appropriate in their context um, to facilitate greater financial inclusion. Um, I was a part of the team that launched that network, um, and that was in 2009. Um, and in part of that work, like I really pushed to, you know, for data to be a major part of that agenda. You know, we were looking at policy and all those kinds of legal things, but you know, I I really pushed for the team to make a space for data to be an explicit pillar in the work that we were doing. Um, and that was really exciting because then it, then we started to look at things like, yeah, like what I was mentioning, um, you know, how do you measure, you know, how do you measure financial inclusion? Like what is an appropriate way to actually even say, like, are people getting access to the services that you need, that they need? Um, you know, how do you even create frameworks for, you know, for, for analyzing where you are, but not just knowing where you are, but also diagnosing like where you need to get to, or how do you get to where you need to get to? Um, you know, so we, in that, in that case, we were looking a lot at, um, at survey data, like nationally representative survey data, um, as well as say like regulatory data where the financial services providers would also provide data on accounts and, you know, numbers of people served uh, to the regulators. But even beyond that, I think that's when this, the, you know, the, the attention started to turn into like alternative types of data sets and, you know, ways of using machine learning, say, to, to fill data gaps. And that, that area was really exciting. And I think it was very nascent at that time. But, you know, since then, then with the work that I was doing here in South Africa as well, what was exciting to me was also using, say, satellite data, um, you know, to, you know, not just map, map, you know, the different things that were happening on the ground based on the, on the surveys, but also to look at ways that you can fill data gaps with the yeah. satellite data that, that is free and <clears throat> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, you know, um, that's easily accessible. Sure. So you, you yeah, you're speaking about the uh, you just uh, briefly mentioned uh, something on sort of the data gap, um, and you are saying this is a project that you undertook uh, back in 2009. Did, am I did I get the date right? Yeah, I mean it was kind of over the course of many years, right, and many okay. different iterations in my, you know, the uh, different so organizations that I've worked with. No, interesting. So I wanted to sort of ask, you know, uh, or maybe just um, do a little bit more on this uh, aspect of the the data divide or the data gap. Um, how how difficult was it to get, um, you know, data? Did you guys have to? And and you can speak to any one of the projects that you worked on over time. 
Um, in this case, you spoke about having also to use like satellite data. Um, and so first of all, how, how hard was it to get the data? And what would be your recommendation uh, to, you know, various organizations that are, are want to maybe do the same work or are looking to work with data in any way? What are some of the tools that you guys used and some of the ways that you um, kind of got around this issue of not having enough data mm. on, on a particular uh, case? Yeah. Mm. That's it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, and there's there's a couple of realities there. Um, I think that there is this. I'll just call it a misconception <laughs> because I feel like it's a misconception. There's you know there's there's a bit of a misconception and a common thing that people do say that you know there's no data in Africa. Yeah, I've heard um, that quite a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think it's an interesting stance because, to me, uh, you know, ultimately with data, data is just a tool. Yeah. So, it really depends on what question you're trying to answer, or what you're actually trying to do. Like, what is the what is the end goal of what you're trying to do? And then I can tell you whether or not there is not enough data, because, yeah. you know, there's. It really has to start with what you're trying to do with it. And then you can say whether or not there's there's data. Because in some cases, there is plenty of data. You know, there so there's plenty of data. And you know, yeah. either there's plenty of data that's obvious or there's going to be and that's what's exciting about data science to me, and also all these alternative sources of potentially alternative sources of data like satellite data. Um, you know, there's all kinds of satellite data that is free and that has you know, coverage of Africa. Um, there's, yeah. uh, you know, social media data. There's, you know, there's other data sources that one could look at, but depending on what you're trying to answer, that may or may not help you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I suppose when people say that, what they mean is, I'll, I'll, I'll try to read their minds there. I think what <laughs> they mean is that it, there's the, there isn't centralized data or, um, I don't know if you get what I mean by that. Yeah. Like there isn't any... Yeah, but but like you said, it all depends on the sort of uh, use case that you are working on. Because if yeah. I remember, we were working on a project on um, sentiment analysis, and we had to um, resort to uh, social media data, for instance. Um, yeah. But it was a very specific case. So yeah, I, I think I agree with you. There is data. It just depends on what you want to use it for. But I suppose you know the the, the question is not. Um, you know, it is not altogether invalid because I think that there's still a sense in which, uh, you know, maybe that data is not accessible. So there's a question of accessibility yeah. um, and also a question of, um, yeah, maybe you can maybe you can speak on, on that particular point of accessibility. How, in particular, maybe as we transition into speaking about Zindi, how you are solving that uh, that problem because some sometimes if it's government data uh, it's it might be very difficult for for any developer or anyone with whatever use case they have to access that data in, in in some in some cases so what would be your advice in terms of the approaches that people can take um, to to uh, access some of this data yeah I think you're totally right that it it 
yeah, in a lot of ways, it's about accessibility. And let's say if a company or an organization, like maybe the project you're working on, maybe it's really what you're looking for is insight into what is happening in the market. You know, so it's not your own data. It's actually something where you need to get signals like from, (laughs) you know, from, you know, somehow you need to find signals like what is happening out there. You want to, you know, have some kind of market you know, market level um, information. And you're right, like if government was collecting it, how do you get that? I I think that, you know, one of my, <laughs> one of my dream jobs, uh, you know, before uh, was this idea of a data wrangler. Yeah. Like I saw this job posting for a data wrangler early on and I was like, oh, that's, that is what I want to do. I want to wrangle data um, because I do feel like, I feel like I am pretty good <laughs> poking around and finding the data sources and yeah and so there's no central repository i mean yeah i'm hoping that now zindi is somewhat of a central repository of of data sets um yeah in africa yeah (laughs) but but there's there's all types of sources you almost like as an individual if you're interested in data it's like which is what happened to me is that you almost start to have this catalog in your mind (laughs) of the different platforms that host different types of data sets. So you know where to start looking for them. Um, But that granular data is almost never available. No one ever wants to release granular data and data, data is gold. Daniel is the name gold. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I sort of understand that. um, uh, I, I sort of understand why, you know, certain organizations might not want to release certain data. But I also think in a way it speaks to, um, it speaks to, or, or, or rather, it's a symptom of something else, which is, I think, this sort of lack of co- collaboration, um, which I think you guys at Zindi are trying to, um, are definitely uh, trying to fix. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get into that. But what, so what what do you think is um there's always this question of silicon valley right you know where in africa we want to build our own silicon valley or we want to replicate silicon valley uh anywhere else in the world but um one of the things that i've i think someone said that you know silicon valley is not uh, a location but it's a it's a state of mind and i think i tend to subscribe to that um to that idea because I think one of the things that I've noticed is the, the collaborative nature uh, of um, of Silicon Valley. So how do you think we can also um, work on that in terms of collaborating with, with each other? Because sometimes maybe the reason why certain people might not release their data, whatever it is, is not necessarily because they want to use it. Maybe someone else would actually, you know... Uh, turn it into into something else or turn it into gold, like you said. Um, but maybe they don't have the capacity. So how do you think we can work around this issue of not wanting to collaborate or um, uh, being always, you know, competitive? Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, I don't know about the collab. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that collaboration thing. Um, but but I want, but I want to say this about about the data, and kind of the whole journey that we've been on with Zindi of getting the data sets onto the platform, is yeah. I, in my previous 
role um, with uh, with Send Free, we were looking for organizations that would open up their data and we could do like a data science project on their data um, and mostly going to like private sector players, um, yeah. you know, and it was incredibly difficult. It was, and, and even if we were saying, look, we have fully fund, like we have funding to do an actual data science project on your data, do you want it? And it was still really hard to convince companies to release their data or open up their data. And then when I came to, then when we started Zindi and we, you know, had the platform and we're asking companies to put their data sets up. I mean, of course, data privacy and, you know, data, you know, the proprietary nature of, of data, like always is going to be an issue, but the yeah. fact that we you know, we have over 200 data sets on Zindi right now. Um, and a big part of it to me is the concept of, you know, of that we, that we, because of the community that we have on Zindi of these amazing, talented people on Zindi, the companies are willing to open up their data because they know that they're going to get something interesting and valuable by doing so, by putting their data out there in the public. They're just excited to know, oh, what's going to come back <laughs> from yeah. from this community of all these like brilliant minds that are, you know, going to are, you know, are, you know, just getting ready to to jump on this data set. <laughs> like they just want to they 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 know inherently that there is some very unique and interesting value um, that that they may get from putting their data on Zindi. So that that's been like really the key. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, that's probably one of the big reasons why people don't just open up their data because you know they don't have a really strong sense of of so, of what value they're going to get from it. No, yeah, definitely. I, I I definitely relate to that experience. So back in the day, um, uh, back in the day in 2017, I I was also kind of um trying to do something similar. So I had a startup uh -huh. called Ant Analytica and go uh, I'd partnered with this uh, organization the Czech Republic so we would basically go to companies and try to you know ask them to work on their data and provide insights and like you said it it, it was pretty much impossible to do that um because you know yeah, and there are all sorts of concerns and maybe also at that time people were were not very sure what we were trying to do what what it is that we we're proposing but maybe yeah. um this would be a good time for you to speak about uh, Zendi and what actually inspired you to uh, to 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 co-found Zendi and 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 how the platform has evolved uh, since its inception in 2018. I think in the first instance, you know, starting Zendi was like a dream come true for me. I mean, I you know, you talk about Silicon Valley and versus Africa, like when I was in California, um, I came to become familiar with Kaggle, which is the global data science competition platform, and they're based out of San Francisco. Yeah. And when I first came across Kaggle, and that was in the early days when they were really a startup, um, they, you know, I was just blown away by what they were doing and kind of that idea of like, oh, you know, the collaboration that was happening on the platform and that you know, these amazing and granular data sets were like getting released out into the public. And I had this idea in my head. I mean, you know, back then was kind of that, uh, 
this concept of liberating the data that was kind of my my internal slogan <laughs> yeah you know for a while was this idea of like you know we need to liberate the data because there's so much value in the data and people are hiding their data and keeping them you know behind closed doors or in their filing cabinets because they and but they don't know you know they don't they wouldn't even know how to get it into the hands of the people that will help them extract that full value so instead they're just keeping it where it is and so I, yeah, with, with Zindi, um, my co-founders, Megan and Echo, we're running a data science consulting company. Um, and they were having the experience of talking to clients in Africa and realizing that a lot of African companies don't think that they can find data scientists in their own markets, that they have to, they assume that they have to go outside of Africa to find the help that they need on their data projects. I was here in South Africa um, with that project on data science for financial inclusion. And I was also as part of that meeting a lot of young people across the continent that were data scientists or aspiring data scientists that, you know, were doing amazing things, even in their own little silos. Um, but, yeah. you know, didn't even know. I talked to one data scientist who was doing all this amazing work with GIS and satellite data in Rwanda. And when I met him, like the only thing he was really interested in, you know, in getting from me or, you know, he was asking my help on was if I could introduce him to other people that were doing similar work um, yeah. because he felt like in Rwanda, like he was, he didn't know anyone else who was doing the similar, you know, similar work to him. So, so I think, you know, for Zindi, uh, for us, like building Zindi, it was about creating that space for young people across the continent to build up their skills, to meet each other, to build community, build networks, um, showcase the amazing work that they're capable of doing. And in that way, then also, you know, they'd be building their careers, you know, that that they're able to get onto that track and, and you know, be accessible to the companies that are looking for people like them. So, you know, for companies, it's about giving them access to the talent, the skills, the, the solutions, that can come out of a platform like Cindy. Awesome. So you just gave me uh, a new phrase that I'm going to be using every meeting that uh, is related to data. I'm just going to be telling people, please liberate the data. That's that's going to be my new phrase from now on. Yeah, because I think... Bit. Yeah, so I, I, I actually, you know... Um, so what you said I think is very important, especially given this example of this particular uh, data scientist. Um, it reminds me of something that Robert still once suggested, but he's uses he's mostly yours. I think it was um, in the CIA or something or Navy or Navy SEAL. I don't remember, but but his basically idea was was around like open intelligence, that you know someone in China can collaborate with someone in the US and they can. But it's, mm -hmm. it's a it's a completely separate issue. But the point is that um, I think it's very important for us to, I think that there's a better case to be made for, uh, for collaboration and sharing information, uh, than, you know, just kind of, uh, uh, you know, putting it under your, your metrics for, for lack of a better, better metaphor. So yeah. What, 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 maybe can you also t tell us a bit more about, uh, the impact that you've had at Zendi, um. Uh, especially on the African uh, data science community and yeah. how you think you are sort of bridging this talent, like you said, between data science talent and, 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 and companies in Africa. Yeah. So, yeah. So Zindi is, 
<clears throat> the largest online network of data scientists in Africa. Um, you know, on our platform, we have close to 70,000 data, let's call them data and AI practitioners. So all the data science plus all the adjacent fields like data analysts and um, uh, data engineers, AI engineers, machine learning engineers. Um, so we, we, we built a platform where, you know, it's kind of a convening place for all of these people to come together to build their skills on real world problems that come from the industry. So companies can put up their data sets and their problems and our community competes then to build the best solutions to these problems. So, you know, the company gets solutions and at the same time, thousands of young people are able to sharpen their skills on real problems that, in, that exist in their own markets. Um, and by doing that, they're also building up their profile. Uh, you know, every everyone on Zindi has their Zindi profile. Every time they enter a competition, end up like in the top 10%, win a medal, even post on the discussion boards, all these things get added to their profile as proof points of what they're capable of doing. Um, so for me, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, for me, Zindi, Zindi is like, it's like a dream job because it is about, on the one hand, liberating the data. It's on the other hand, it's also about creating this space for, for young people to build up their career opportunities and close that career gap, what do you call, close that opportunity gap, close the, you know, the digital divide and the opportunity gap. Um, our goal is to make AI accessible to everyone. That's our, that's our goal. Um, we, yeah, and in terms of the, the impact we're having, we have seen so many people. I mean, yeah, just even like I, <laughs> I have so many stories that I could share, but I guess, you know, there's a lot of instances where we, we have people on the platform who came onto Zindi maybe three, four, maybe even five years ago and didn't yeah. know what data science was or machine learning was. They came on the platform, they, you know, poked around at a competition, struggled, weren't able to load their data in their Python environment, weren't able to build their first machine learning model, you know, in the first instance, and but persevered and continued to try different problems, try different data sets, started to meet other people on the platform. And actually, you know, even I'll just say the guy who's at the top of the leaderboard right now, who's Tunisian. He, I mean, literally that was his story. He, before COVID or just at the start of COVID, he entered his first Zindi competition. He couldn't even start it. Like he said, he stayed for two oh. days and wasn't even able to make one submission to the competition he was in. And three years later, he's number one. And he has a job now. He graduated from university and went straight into a job as a data scientist. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah. what what is your experience at Zindi? How is it challenged this notion that there's um there's very little, you know, tech talent in, in, in Africa, particularly in machine learning and AI? Oh, I think there's so much. There's so much there's so much raw talent, there's so much raw skills. And I think what's exciting about a field like data science is that it is still relatively new and one, it's relatively new. So it's open to, it's an open playing field and especially all the stuff that's happening in AI right now, generative AI and chat GPT, all these 
areas are new to everybody. So the field is yeah. wide open. So it's a matter of who's going to run the fastest in the first 100 meters, you know, because it's not a field where you can say, oh, I need someone with 10 years of work experience. That doesn't exist. Um, so we have, so I think in, for Africa, I think there's huge opportunities. And I think that because there is so much skill and there's so much innovation and there's so much drive, I think that it's a huge opportunity um, for Africa. And, and then the other, the other side, aside from, you know, it being a new field, I think the second point is also that it's a field that requires people to also have some amount of, I guess, cross-sectoral knowledge, some yeah. domain knowledge, because data science doesn't live in a bubble, right? It lives within a broader environment of what the problem is that you're trying to solve. So, sure. yeah, so whether it's in financial services or retail or manufacturing or, you know, you know anything. So I think it's also an interesting opportunity because we see in, on Zinvi people are coming from all different backgrounds. Um, and I think that's perfect. <laughs> Yeah. So, what 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 what's the what does it look like on the opportunity side? Um, because you know, in as much as we might have talent, we still also need opportunities on the uh, on the employment side. Are you seeing yeah. Are you seeing more you know data science roles in companies? Uh, African companies lately. There's so much demand. I mean, the demand for these skills globally tripled in the last year. I mean, it's it yeah. it is definitely growing i it is still you know relatively nascent in some ways like in the african you know the african market is still in the early days so even in the 5 years that zindis existed i've seen the demand for data science skills just grow exponentially so it's um and i also think that that's an important role that zindis playing is you know partnering with companies and organizations to make sense of the opportunities and also to lower the barriers and the risks involved with hiring the right talent for them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting. You, you, you obviously have mentioned that uh, you've involved, you've been involved in in a, in a in a number of high-profile challenges. But um, I'm interested uh, in in uh, in the XPRIZE uh, the pandemic response challenge. Uh, can you can you tell us a bit? more about this challenge and how Zindi uh, contributed to the global response um, uh, to COVID-19. Yeah, during the, yeah, when COVID hit, that was such a crazy time. And, you know, for us at Zindi, I mean, for the community on Zindi, about half of our Zindians are in university. So in March 2020, literally, like, you know, one cut. I, I mean, I, you were there. I'm sure you, you remember that it was like in one week's time. It was like Ghana closed, Nigeria closed, uh, Kenya closed. It was like one country after yeah. another was saying, "Okay, we're shutting down," and all the universities closed their doors. A lot of the Indians were directly impacted. People were going back home, like leaving campus. Uh, yeah. Didn't have classes to go to anymore. Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, for, you know, for so many reasons and for so many people, it was like a, a crazy time and a scary time. But we, we realized that, you know, this was this, you know, Zindi had to step up in some way, like step up in the sense of help solve some of the problems that 
you know, related to COVID and also step in, in a sense that there's all these people who are no longer in classes who don't have that, even the social aspects of it, of not having your, your classmates and your peers around you anymore. So we ran a series of competitions on Zindi that were COVID related or, you know, focused on COVID related issues. We did one on, um, that's like an epidemiology type of problem of, um, you know, predicting the spread of COVID, but using machine learning. Um, We did others on, you know, analyzing the sentiment analysis, sentiment on social media channels. uh, yeah, I mean, so we ran a, num- a whole series of of challenges on Zindi that were that were related to to COVID, and I think it was both you know raising awareness about you know the ways that data science and AI could play a, an important role in solving the issues that were emerging from COVID, as well as you know making sure that we created a space where a lot of the students that were being sent home like had a way to continue their you know, their learning journey and continue to connect with, with other people. Awesome. So, you know, I, I, I'm always shocked that sometimes how we, how our response or, or our position has been, you know, after COVID, it's like, we didn't realize how much of a, of a shock that was uh, to our institutions and, um, and, and our response because in, in in so many cases we had to depend on uh, uh, on other on other nations uh, in terms of you know copying what sort of response works and and like you said you know I think Zinde's work was uh, important during that period but I also want you to speak to how that how data science um, and AI can what role uh, those particular areas can play in terms of preparing for for um, you know for a pandemic because i think if anything it reviewed just how uh completely dependent we were um even in our response so what do you think uh yeah. maybe even how Zin, what the role that zindi can play in terms of you know preparing for the next pandemic or preparing for any sort of um uh, or disaster of that nature Sure. I I mean, I think yeah, any number of any number of ways. I think that there's one thing that we're seeing when we interact with say, you know, researchers and academics and, you know, say like in the area of public health and epidemiology, uh, you know, there is definitely an interest in ways that AI and machine learning can play a role in even like, you know, the models that are being built, the types of data sets that that they're analyzing to inform the models. Um, you know, there's definitely, you know, tried and true traditional, you know, statistical models that are used in those areas. But it, I think it'll be interesting to see, like, as the data sets become larger and the, you know, the potential data that informs these models become more, you know, uh, just that there's more different types of data sets that you can look at. Like, it'll be interesting to see where machine learning and AI can you know enhance uh, you know the models that that are used in those areas, um, and then aside from that, I think uh, you know our lives have been permanently changed in a lot of ways, just in terms of yeah. the, you know 
working from home and being much more attuned to tools like Zoom and, you know, just being able to work more efficiently, uh, you know, where you're not physically in the same place. And and even for Zindi, we don't have an office anymore. And we have a fully remote team and it's working quite well with, you know, with the different tools that are available. And I think, you know, taking it to the, other, you know, the all the stuff that's happening in AI and tools that are being built around AI technologies, like that actually is a big part of <laughs> what's enabling us to work so efficiently, you know, in a post-pandemic world. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so, you know, you are, like you mentioned, uh, uh, a, a female uh, founded startup and um, I you know according to a, a 2020 world economic forum report uh, it just, it found that women make up only 26 percent of data and AI positions uh, in the workforce um, uh, in the context of that I I'm interested in what you know maybe what ways um, are you at Zendi encouraging uh, more women to get involved? Um, in data science and and AI, yeah, given that you're also a you know female founded um, startup, gender balance in this space is I mean it it's a priority for us at Cindy. Um, it's something that I mean I'm I'm excited about that you know that in the co-founding team of Zindi, two of us are women, and I think that actually allowed us to you know to be more sensitive to the issues that might traditionally exclude women from from an area like this if that makes yeah. sense i think just the sensitivity and awareness that we're able to have because we've been in that seat before um you know has allowed us to be more inclusive just naturally without really doing much more than that and yeah, so the platform is 28% women, which we're super proud of. Um, and uh, aside from that, we've also run a few things that, you know, a few programs that were targeted at helping women overcome that, you know, any, you know, some of those, uh, I guess, um, yeah, I don't know about this word imposter syndrome, but anyway, yeah. you know what I'm, I'm, I'm getting at. So, yeah, you know, we've done some mentorship programs for women uh, on Zindi. We also have done a couple of competitions that focus on um, issues that involve women and also prizes that are dedicated to women on the platform. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's very important to us. Our goal is to get to 50% women <laughs> on the platform. Yeah. I think that would be, be awesome. So just looking ahead, what, um, what are your goals and, and aspirations for Zindi? and its impact on the wide uh, African data science community. Um, yeah, my goal is for Zindi to to be that, you know, that engine that is, you know, that is, that is growing the pipeline of data talent, data and AI talent that are coming out into the marketplace, that anybody knows that they can come to Zindi and that they can build their skills, that they can find a job that they can find a network of like-minded people you know i connect with people um you know we, you had mentioned before about that collaboration across countries uh you know you see teams of someone from you know with someone from kenya with another person in tunisia with another person in india 
And that's a team that's working on a problem for, say, South Africa. Like that kind of like barrier crushing (laughs) experience is, I think, something that's super valuable and important. Um, Anyway, so I, you know, my my goal would be that that we're creating that that long term pipeline of talent in Africa and feeding it out into the into the world where where this talent is most needed. I mean, and that's, you know, in Africa and even beyond Africa. Awesome. So um, at this point, maybe I would like to transition uh, and speak about your your journey as an entrepreneur. Um, someone once said that starting a company is like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. And uh, I, I tend to agree with that statement. But uh, can you can you tell us about some of the biggest challenges that you faced in in, st- in starting and growing Zindi, and uh, uh, more specifically, how you uh, you you managed to overcome those challenges? As a, I think as a first time founder, it's like it's a very unique experience to be a first time founder, and a lot of us go through it. Of course, you know it's it's building a plane while flying it. It's you know, the learning curve is so steep um, on so many levels. And I just, yeah, I think you can't even relate to it until you, until you lived it. Um, It's, yeah, I think it's, it's extremely challenging, but I've found a lot of comfort in, you know, in networks as well. I mean, just as we're building a network on Zindi, um, I've also been very fortunate in being able to plug into other networks of, say, female founders, networks of, um, you know, founders of social enterprise, you know, mission-driven startups <laughs> uh, like Zindi. Um, you know, just, yeah, communities have really been the thing that's gotten me through, actually. Awesome. So, um you know, would you maybe offer advice to someone who wants to be like you? Uh, maybe let's say they want to be a female founder as well, and they're interested in starting their own company, particularly in technology or um, something uh, to do with data science. What would be your your advice? Yeah, I think that uh, I guess building on what you know what's helped me get through is is I would I would advise them to try to plug into communities and networks, talk with other people, um, you know, find other like-minded people that are on the same journey as you. Maybe they'll even become your co-founders. Um, I think you should try to not do it alone. Um, I, I mean, I know people who've done it alone and successfully, but I just can't even imagine, <laughs> you know, how challenging that would be. And maybe you could you could actually speak on like how you how you met met your co-founder. Um, I think I think it's Peter Thiel from Founders Fund. Uh, Founders Fund. The one of the questions that they they always uh, ask this question around how how you met your co-founder, and they say that the the wrong answer would be. Um, so I'm not privy to your answer, so I, I don't know if if you want to give me the wrong response here. So they say the wrong answer would be like we met at some networking event and then we decided to start a company. And the right Right. answer would be along the lines of, you know, we're longtime friends or, you know, we went to, I don't know, something like that. So the the basic idea is that um, they would prefer founders that have had like 
that have like a strong relationship as opposed to those that yeah. you know let's say mostly a working relationship so yeah. how do you meet your co-founder and and what one was that story um we and so uh echo and megan are my two other co-founders um megan echo was the chief analytics officer at barclays bank africa um megan was a data scientist and she's been a data scientist for over a decade um she was she went to barclays to pitch and um echo hired her to do some work as a as a contractor megan was building ixio analytics which is the data science company um so they started they knew each other from a long time ago um because echo had hired megan and they as ixio analytics um and while i was here in south africa for my other company i got to meet them um ixio analytics and meet megan and hired them to do some work for me um in that job so we knew each other i you know we knew each other on a professional level but it's yeah. you know it was something that was built up over over many years in a sense uh, uh, and mutual yeah. respect and you know just you know respect for each other's work in a way um and a common interest in this this space like a common passion in this space yeah so what are some of the things that you guys say when you sort of look back um on what zindi has become you know since its inception in 2018 um and yeah i'm just interested in how you guys you know relate to your success uh, thus far I think it's I think it's evolved in ways that we never would have thought. Like I think that we didn't set out to build this or to know, you know, really knowing where this would lead. Um yeah. uh but yeah, I and and I guess that would be advice to people thinking about going on this journey is that I mean, you just I, I mean, is that you don't know what will happen and you, you, yeah. you know, you, you just constantly learn and you constantly adapt and you constantly see the opportunities and, you know, it's, it's like, we're, we're also part of Founders Factory Africa. They're one of our investors. And, um, it was kind of like one of the lessons or workshops that they did with us is like, you know, you, you do a whole bunch of things and you see where you, you know, you, you actually and you want to measure it as much as you can, but you see where you get, yeah. you're getting your traction and you, and you just keep following the traction. You just keep doing a bunch of things and just keep following that path. So it's almost like this idea, if you can think about it, kind of like jumping from one, one stone to the next, like in a river. And it's like, you don't actually know <laughs> where it's going to end up, but you just know that yeah. there's a state rock right here that you're going to land on. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, uh, people, I, I was speaking with my first guest who we was speaking about sort of the role of naivety and in, in sort of uh, this entrepreneurial journey that mm. um, it's actually a very important ingredient. Sometimes you actually have to be naive um, mm. in, in a sort of an optimistic uh, uh, way. Yeah. And how, how have you built a team around you um Obviously, I've I've interacted with some of your team members. I, uh, Paul, in particular, yeah. great guy. Like, how, how do you manage to build um, a successful and great team around you? What, what what's your oh. thought process as a, as a leader in terms of that? I don't. I don't know. I got very lucky. The I mean, yeah. I should have. I should have even acknowledged this in the first place. Is that 
our the team at Zindi is just, I mean, incredible. And the successes and every tick mark that we're able to tick, it is thanks to to this amazing dedicated team that's behind the scenes. Um, it's, I feel very fortunate. I don't even know. I mean, we have some of the core team that we have, you know, are basically employee number, you know, after, after the founders, employee number one, employee number two, employee number three, employee number four, you know, it's like those people, like a lot of, like, the people that we have like have actually been through through everything with us um and i feel very fortunate yeah that's awesome um so maybe you could also share with us what your uh information diet looks like uh especially in this ever changing world and environment you where you constantly have to um stay up to date so what what sort of information do you do you consume and um uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. What type of information do I consume? <laughs> a lot of YouTube. <laughs> a lot of YouTube channels. That I, I was. That uh, I, this is like tutorials or something. It. Yeah. I mean, it's like whenever I'm like trying to figure out a you know a concept and you know a technical concept in AI or data science, and also I'm not the technical person on the team, right? But I just have to at least understand, you know, what what's coming up and what's happening in the space. So that you know, it's it's that. It's also um, I do like the Y Combinator uh, channel on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, they have like a podcast also that it's I I find it's really helpful with the partners. Um, I find their advice. Yeah, I find their advice helpful. I think yeah. So it's. Yeah, I'm I'm consuming a mix of information about the technical space plus the business space plus the startup space. In essence, I guess is the the match that I need to make. Um, but to be honest, it's like the stuff that I consume is mostly like on YouTube or my news feed. Um Yeah. But it does the trick. <laughs> awesome. So maybe is there like so you can go on. Oh, I was just going to say that like for startups and for people, you know, in the startup world, I think the other thing is that one of my investors warned me on, though, is that there's always a lot of opinions um, and yeah, uh, yeah, you in the end have to have to make up your own opinion. <laughs> exactly. I, I think I was reading a tweet or and I also listened to someone say this on, on a podcast that um, sometimes as a founder, you should or, or as a person, really, you should always try to avoid people uh, that give like generic advice because the person might be a successful entrepreneur in uh, I don't know maybe in retail but they might not uh-huh. give you the advice that you need as the founder of Zindi uh, at mm. a data science platform so you'd always be careful in terms of advice uh, it doesn't yeah. really matter uh, where it's coming from so um, is there maybe any sp- a specific book that you read that you would want to recommend to listeners? Something that has probably impacted uh, your thinking and your your worldview in some way. Um. Yeah. I mean, worldview. So it's not so much related, I suppose, to my journey with Cindy. But I. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with Yuval Harari, uh, who's the he he wrote. Um, 
Crathians and Homo Deus. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so I, I, I really like those books. I, you know, it, it has shaped my worldview in a lot of ways. I mean, just kind of the perspective on, uh, you know, where we come from and where we're going and kind of also even, let's say like, you know, the, the whole capitalist system, um, and just keeping those things in perspective and just kind of giving a different perspective on, uh, you know, on where we are really, um, but yeah, I would I would recommend Sapiens, especially. It's an interesting book. Awesome. Um, so tell us where uh, our listeners can find you online, and how if someone wants to, you know, for um, someone who is doing data science and AI and wants to be part of the Zindi community, can you also um, tell us about how they can they can join that tribe? Yeah, so we have we have super active um, social channels for Zindi. You can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, probably all the all the platforms. Uh, we we do have um, an active account on, so you can find Zindi there. My only social that I am most active on is LinkedIn, um, and. Yeah, and if you're a data scientist or aspiring data scientist or just someone who's just interested, I would really encourage you to go to zindi.africa um, and create an account and check out the discussions and the competitions and data sets. Um, yeah, and maybe you can uh, learn even a small thing is something. Awesome. Thank you, Selena, for joining us. Um, really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was nice. Awesome.